Our words are many. Think about it. The words that come from our mouth are many. Some are serious and weighty and some are light and fun. Some hurt, some help. Some are cautious and well-chosen. Some are careless and flippant. But from all of us, there is a constant flow of words, much like a faucet when you turn it on that in some ways just keeps gushing forth. You may not realize it, but uh, from the moment you say good morning to the time you say good night, the average person actually engages in about 30 conversations. Statisticians estimate that each of us will spend 13 years of our life talking. Now, some of you are looking at one another thinking, well, at least spend more than that. Anyway, every day with our words, we could write a book of 50 to 60 pages. And to put that into perspective, in a year, we could actually author 264 books with over 200 pages in each book, just with the words that come from our mouths. Now, if you happen to be um, a fast talker, I don't know too many, but... um, Some say, I am that way. You could actually, if you speak in excess of 300 words, write a whole lot more than 264 books in a year's time. Now imagine how many books you would be writing over the course of your lifetime if we were not just talking about words that came out of your mouth, but thoughts that contained words in your head. People actually hold records for what is called non-stop talking. There is a gentleman by the name of Kevin Cheehan of Limerick, Pennsylvania, who back in 1955 set a world record for nonstop talking. He talked nonstop for 133 hours. Imagine that. I mean, just 24-hour days, five days. That's not even still that, 133. And then... In 1975, someone was ambitious enough that they were going to break the record, and they actually did break the record. They're one of our very own. They're from Minnesota. That person talked nonstop for 144 hours. And his name is Tim Hardy. Well, you may not realize it by the way maybe your husband listens to you or um, your wife or your kids or your boss. But your words are extremely important. What you have to say really, truly matters. In fact, Jesus said that in his teaching as we look at Matthew chapter 12. And we look at these next few verses. I cut this chapter at verse 32 last week. And so in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, it's really a continuation of the teaching. But if you look at the very last verse, verse 37, Jesus makes it really clear that what we say is far more important than what we think. What we might actually consider when we think about our words. For verse 37 says, for by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Think about that for a second. You see that sometimes. You watch a a show like CSI or some kind of law and order or something. And and often what they try and do is they tape something to someone so it has a microphone so they can catch the person's what? Words. So they can, quote, in a sense, trap them so that when they play it, they can use those very words to condemn them or in some cases even acquit. 
And that's in a sense what Jesus is saying. Does that shock you to think that by the words that you're writing, some 264 books of 200 pages a year, which add up over the lifetime that you have, that there will be this opening of books in a sense that not only are the words that recorded, but the thoughts and intentions of the hearts that are recorded will all be laid out. And it says, according to Jesus... And Jesus was really quoting a proverb in that day. It was a, an axiom, a truism that they, that they would probably quote to one another. And that is it by your words. Your words which are very important. You'll stand acquitted or condemned. Often we think it's our actions. But Jesus goes one layer lower. Because Jesus is so concerned with the heart. We focus on the external. We're constantly judging by appearance. We're constantly taking the words of someone that they use in order to get us to look at reality in a certain way, and we look at that, but God looks on the heart. He sees what no man can see. So in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, you see here that Jesus, who has been calling attention to the danger of standing in a neutral place, and then he says in the horror of someone who improperly labels uses words to condemn something. Verses 32 through 37, continuing last week's teaching, Jesus talks about the, the tree and its fruit, and then he talks about the heart and its words. I'm going to break it down into, it's the tree and its fruit and the heart and its words. In fact, in verse 30 of chapter 12 last week, Jesus was really clear. He says, he was, who is not with me is against me. He uses a negative here to say he was not with me is against me. He, he wanted to make it very clear to the people who were seeing what Jesus was doing and saw the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Whenever you see the manifestation, the works of the Holy Spirit, whenever you see the work of this Holy Spirit, its fruit out there, it is a, it is a opportunity for your heart to respond to it. And you cannot, as Jesus was saying to those people who were looking at what happened to this person who was once dumb, who is now speaking as a result of the power of the Holy Spirit dealing with this unclean spirit that came out of this man, he is saying and you can't stand back and just go, wow, that was really cool. I wonder, wonder if this is really the Jesus. If you're not with me, then you're against me. And then he also says, and this is the teaching that we look at here in these verses, as you look at verse, specifically verses 32 through verse 37, 33 through 37, Jesus is turning the, the page now. He's not talking to the neutrally curious who are wondering who have seen the work of the spirit he now moves to the people who have actually seen the work of the spirit and he's not talking to the average joe the average person on the street he's talking to the person who has been in the church the pharisee the person who should know the best the one who's been prepared by god's holy spirit to be able to see and to receive and when the spirit was there they should because of the word that they know because of the teaching that they've had should be able to go that's god and he looks at them and he goes you look at what's happening, and instead of calling it what it is, you call it the opposite. Look at these verses, verse 32. Again, in verse 33, let's start there. He, he, he uses a, a, a proverb that was probably well known in their day. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers... Can you just hear how he says it? You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in him. 
But I tell you that everyone, everyone will give an account on the day of judgment for every empty or the word careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus applies this to those who were looking at what he was doing and they were accusing Jesus of being bad and evil and up to no good. So the first is the tree and its fruit. He says good produces good. That which by nature is good is going to produce by nature that which is good. And that which is by nature evil or bad will that by nature also prove and result in that which is evil and bad. So if you look at verse 33, this proverbial statement, Jesus is in a sense, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree, and you can know, is recognized by its fruit. Fruit is something so important to pay attention to. And Jesus is challenging them not to go out and make good and bad trees. That's not what the proverbial statement is. The word make in the, in the Greek, the poia, really means to, to consider, to think. He wants you to, to use your head for a second. He says, you know, if you have a tree that's good, won't it produce good? He wants them to reconsider as he's speaking to them and they have just looked at all he's been doing and they've been saying things that stand against it. He wants them to reconsider their conclusions. This is the word repent. It means to think again how you've been processing things. Think again about your strategies of life. Think about the foundation from which you live in. What you are doing, you need to reconsider so that this whole work of God can take place in you. And they have just been responding to the presence of the Holy Spirit that comes through him, the Holy Spirit of God, and they have been looking at it and they have been calling it the opposite when they should know better. See, God's presence was tangible through the work of the Holy Spirit whenever Jesus taught. That was clear. You go back to Matthew chapter 7, and it's just after the teaching that Matthew collects together of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has taught, maybe for a couple days has been teaching, and, and the people are so so um, overwhelmed by this teacher that it says that when he finished saying these things, verse 28 and verse 29 of chapter 7, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. As it, the word authority means as, as, as if he authored the words. That's what it comes Authority means he authored those words. In the same way when the Holy Spirit is in us, it is the Holy Spirit who authors these words and these words have power to do things. And so God's presence was evident through the Holy Spirit as he taught. God's presence was, was evident through the miracles that he actually performed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And people saw this. Matthew 8, just a little bit before this, Jesus is in the back of the boat. He's sleeping. And the boat is tossing and turning. He's so calm and secure in the presence of his Father that he's actually so exhausted he sleeps through, that, that Peter comes back. He's upset. He wakes Jesus up and he says, Don't you care if we're going to drown? Grab a bucket, Jesus, and help. And awakened from his nap in the back of the boat, Matthew records that Jesus got up, verse 26 and 27 of chapter 8, and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. He just looked out and he said, be quiet. And there were other boats besides that boat out there, it says in one of the other passages. And they were all, it says, amazed. And, and the disciples asked, what kind of man is this? This is something, is even the winds and the waves obey him. And God's presence was not just manifest through what he taught and through the miracles that he did. It was also very much manifest in the power that he had, the authority that he had over evil and unclean spirits. 
Something that in our culture, in our day, because of our medical, rationalistic, scientific mindset, and again, there's some really good things that God has birthed out of this that has allowed for us as people to grow and develop. But one of the realities that we deny is the reality of the, the, the realm of the Spirit. If you go in any other place in the world, they will tell you they're real. And this culture in that day knew the reality of it. Even those who were charging Jesus for not being the, the Messiah knew that these things were real. It says in this passage of Scripture, while they were going out, a man who was demonized, could not talk, was brought to Jesus, probably laid at his feet, and when the demon was driven out, the man who had been dumb spoke, and the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever happened before. What do you make of it? And it's the first time we read in chapter 9, that Matthew tells us that those who were opposed to this and saw what the Spirit was doing looked at it and said, "You guys, that's not that's not the Messiah. You guys don't don't go that don't go down that path. This is no more than the Prince of Demons, the guy we call Beelzebub. He's the he's the one who's over the spirit, the spirit over the of the air that's over all these things, and that's why he has the power to do it. And so then we read that there, and then he tells his disciples in chapter ten, "Watch out, people are going to call you the same as me. A student doesn't have any greater than the the one teaching him." And now we come to chapter twelve, and they actually, to his face, say it. And those who are living their life under the law, seeking to justify themselves and to control their lives and, and to control the people around them because they thought in some way that if they could be in charge and secure it on their own, they could somehow manage life and have life and they would think that God would go, good job, and it was all about their own pride, their own self, and, and Jesus came who walked in such a way that he was so dependent on the Spirit that he wasn't going around controlling people. His love transformed hearts. And he just would speak the truth. He would say, here's reality. You can choose to live in it or not. But if you choose not to, watch out. But if you choose to live in it, it can change your life. The Holy Spirit of God will enter you. Because the Word is so powerful. And they took offense. And when they heard these people thinking that somehow Jesus might be the Messiah, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And the words from their mouth gave them away. It was the fruit of their lips which revealed the nature of their hearts. And they looked upon God revealing Himself in Jesus through the Holy Spirit and they called Him the Prince of Demons. That which was the ultimate expression of holiness. They called the ultimate expression of evil. Manifest before them. And Jesus was really clear. He says, what's most evil is not that you even blaspheme me, but that you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. This same Holy Spirit upon whom I will give as a gift to you, who will be given as a gift that will, through my body, called the church, show up again and again. There will be people who are religious, who are people who are church people. When the Holy Spirit comes, they will stand against it because they cannot stand the manifestation of the Spirit because the manifestation of the Spirit calls them to be broken, humble, and in a place where they will seek and understand and know truth and not be able to justify themselves through their own self. And all throughout history we have seen that. And Jesus said, verse 31 and 32 of chapter 12, And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven man. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then to make it incredibly, absolutely clear, 
Jesus says it one more time. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, he's saying me, will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. In a sense, he says, be careful. When you see evidence of God's Spirit, be careful you don't start speaking against it. When you see the revelation of God through the Holy Spirit and the power of God beginning to show up, watch out. I have to share with you, Satan is fine with a church that is in its flesh. He loves a church that wants to do it through its own human power. He's not really afraid of a church that is depending on their own strength, their own abilities, their own talents, because he knows that has no power to change the things in the Spirit. He knows that our abilities in and of itself cannot transform one heart. But what he is really afraid of, he is afraid of a group of people, one or two, three or four, five or six. It begins to spread. It begins to spread in a way that hearts become saying, hungry, I want you, God. And they become so broken and so, so in a place of humility that they say, God, we want you more than anything because we know that in our own strength, only you can do the things that we want done here. Only you can transform this world around us. Only you can transform my own heart. I've become to understand that. And when he begins to transform your heart, it's the same Holy Spirit that you realize has the power to do things in you. It has the power to do things in your marriage. It has the power to make you a different father or mother. It has the power to allow for you to begin to seek boldly about the things of God when you go to work. It is that power that comes to the Holy Spirit that alone can transform hearts. And all hell is afraid of a church that is so filled with the Spirit, that understands it and knows that. This community that has unclean, evil spirits around, is so afraid of a group of people who from their hearts would say, God, pour yourself upon us in such a way we want to be vessels of your Holy Spirit, the power and manifestation of who you are. We want to be people. And I'm not, it doesn't have to be weird things, folks. It's people whose hearts have been changed so that the character of our life is different. We are people that are filled with love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and love and, and self-control and all these things. Walking around as the fruit of God by our very words. Isn't that exciting? I'm excited. And Jesus makes a statement of fact. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. And he's calling them to think. Be logical. Use your head. Don't you know that a tree and its fruit must coincide? They must be consistent. That which is good has to produce that which is good. And you'll recognize it by it producing that which is good. And Jesus is saying, look at my life. I am doing good. How can you call it evil? You've seen it in my teaching. You've seen it in my healing. You've seen it in the demonstration of the, of the message and the power. So that Luke will write, I love this, in Acts chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. Peter is explaining to Cornelius about this God that has shown himself in Jesus Christ. And he says to him, he says, you know what happened. He's teaching a whole bunch of people. You know what happened through Judea. This is well known in a sense. It began in Galilee. You're aware of this. Right after the baptism of John. How, listen to this. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. You can't, those aren't throwaway words. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Because God was with him. This summer, um, I have, I, I, in, the, in the spring, I like to 
work in our garden. And I'm not a very good gardener, so just so you know that. And after the first service, everyone was giving me tips on gardening. So um, I, I appreciate that. But um, anyway, we have these four garden boxes, and they're about so deep. And I get three of them for, you know, growing vegetables that have different fruits or different things like that. And, and if I can get to them before my dogs, I'm really thrilled, you know. They, they love tomatoes and everything else. But we have one little garden patch that is a garden that um, has roses. And my, my wife likes it so it can be out the window back there. And I get her roses for Mother's Day and get a whole bunch of them. And, and because it's not very deep, we, we don't get the roses to bloom year after year. They die out and we get new ones. And this year, I'm back there and three of them are showing life. And I'm excited. I just put in all the other ones, and I and, and I didn't. I saved room for those three because I'm competitive by nature, and so I I wanted to see if the ones that were there could grow faster than the other ones who had been shocked and put in the in, in the ground, right? And one of them took off. I was so excited, and I'm giving it fertilizer, and it's growing, and week after week, it's growing bigger, it's getting huge, it's wild in its growth, no buds. And so I thought, as a good guy, I'll prune this thing back, prune it back, and. And I watch it's grown even more. No buds. I went down to the local gardener who is a horticulturist and asked him about it. And they go, well, you know, more than likely you have a, a rose where the roots that produces the buds is dead. And you've got like a taproot or something. And it's just growing wildly. You won't have any, any rose buds. It's a no good plant. I could wish forever, I could do all kinds of things. What Jesus is saying, by the nature of it, it will produce the same nature. The only thing I could do was take it, dig it up, get rid of it, and put a new one in its place. Folks, that is what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to each and every person. If you want to begin to have the fruit that comes out not only in your words but into your actions, you need a new heart. You need a new root. And, and God is more than willing to place a new heart in you. He's not going to give you a, a valve job. He's not really concerned of coming in and, and doing a few stints. He's asking for you to say, God, I need a new heart. And I'm asking that you would place this new heart in me and God will do it. If you are in that place and you are saying, I have seen the fruits of my life. The fruits of my life are causing nothing but frustration. They come in no other way but that. He is calling you for some of you for the first time. You have never done it. You've never humbled yourself. You've never come to a place where you said, God, put this new heart in me. Plant within me as you promised in your word, your heart that will through your Holy Spirit begin to give me a new life. And there are some of you who have said, oh yeah, I did that. I did it years ago at a camp experience. But you know what? You can continue to walk in the flesh. You need to say, God, expose my heart. Cleanse my heart. I repent once again. I want to rethink that I've been living my life not on the Spirit, not on the power and the energy and the life that comes from you, but I'm asking that you will in a new way infuse me with your Holy Spirit and life. I ask your Holy Spirit to come in and to fill me in a way you've never done before. Because the law of nature holds true in the law of the Spirit. You need a new heart if you're going to have good fruit. And you also need to walk in this new heart if you're going to produce that fruit. So that means, as we talk about even as a church, we talk about 30 days of Thanksgiving. 30 days of Thanksgiving is a choice to walk in the new heart that says, God, for all that happens, we're going to be grateful. 
And we're going to walk in that way. Look at words, though, heart and words. The next thing Jesus says, you, you, it's interesting, and, and I found this to be really interesting when I was studying this passage of Scripture. Your words reveal your heart, is what Jesus goes on to say, if you look at these next verses, 34 and 35. Jesus doesn't point to actions. I think it's kind of interesting. There are other passages of Scripture when he's talking about good fruit, or you see in the New Testament, he'll talk about actions. He's not talking about actions. He's talking about words. And I think it's interesting that he talks about words to these people at this point. Because their actions haven't come to blossom. The words have not moved to the place of actual action. The fruit in that is yet to appear. They only see the buds in a sense of the word. He hears it in their words, their criticism, their anger, their slander, their hatred, their jealousy, their gossip. And he points to the words which will someday be shown in the fruit of their action. And that's one of the things Jesus often does. See, we get so caught up in the action, we go, I'm a pretty good person, and we justify ourselves because we pay attention to the actions, but man, the attitude of our heart, our words are really rotten. We're still walking in this place over here, which is the place of the flesh without the new heart, and we've been so undisciplined that we have now moved to a place where the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, begins to cause us to say, God, I want to have not just actions that aren't seen and not done, but I want to have words and attitudes that are totally transformed. That they empower the actions I do for others. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, your attitudes reflect the heart of like the older brother in that parable of the lost son or the Pharisee or the hypocrite. And he says, I don't care if you have Sunday school attendance pins that go all the way down to the floor and all kinds of works of service. If your heart is beginning to spew forth these kind of attitudes which are reflected even in your words and your thoughts, take note. He's speaking to you. And so Jesus, as he looks about the first part, he talks about good fruit, good tree. He kind of sets the nail and then with these verses, verse 34, he kind of takes the hammer and pounds it in. Because he, listen to this, verse 34. You brood of vipers. That's got to hurt, right? I kind of go, ouch, that, that's going to leave a mark. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, and a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. If you look at John the Baptist, Jesus came as the glad guy, the guy who was really happy. He says a few, you know, in the first part of this chapter, He's the one who comes and he's called to be a drunkard and one who is um, a friend of sinners. And, and then you have John the Baptist, who on the other hand is a sad guy. So you've got glad guy, sad guy. Sad guy comes and all he is about is condemning. He wears these rags, these clothes. He comes from the desert. He's a strange guy. His point is basically at one point Jesus says, I don't care if I come as a glad guy or a sad guy. No matter what I come, you won't hear the word of God. Listen how close his words here parallel the words of John the Baptist, the sad guy. Look at verse chapter 3, verse 7 through 11 in Matthew. In verse 7, he says, But John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath. It's this picture of this nest of snakes, all running from the little nest that they're in because of the heat of a fire possibly coming their way. And he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit, in keeping with repentance. It's the same idea. 
And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. As if you can say, I've grown up in the church, I have parents who have been really active and, and been leaders in the church, and I, because I'm related to this whole stuff, somehow I am one of God's. Don't even think you can do that. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. That's easy for God to do, create physical beings that come from a generation lineage of religiosity. What is the work of God is those who have the heart and faith of Abraham who have been transformed because of the Holy Spirit. And so he goes on and he says this, The axe is already at the the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, verse 11, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you, listen to this, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And the point is this, the fruit, you guys, is in your words, even before your actions of nailing me to a cross. You can be churches full of people who don't nail people to the cross, but their words can. And the word parisuma here means superabundance or overflow. He means in the, out of the overflow or abundance of your heart. The mouth is like an overflow valve for the reservoir of your heart. And these people he's talking to appeared holy and good and highly religious, but under their garb, under all their apparent goodness, was a cesspool of pride and fear, which came out in their words. And hypocrisy hid the truth of what Jesus had the guts to say out loud. He looked at him and said, you brood of vipers. And your words, he says, flow from your heart and they reveal character. And Jesus continues and he calls them evil. But then he goes one step further and says, you're condemned. All of this. You have to know when Jesus moves to these words of condemnation, he doesn't do so out of a sense of, I'm out to get you and I don't like you guys because you don't like me. I mean, that's the way I read it. I mean, my heart goes, ah, I'm out to get him. Jesus, out of pure love, mercy, looks in the eyes and says, guys, don't you realize that these words that are the fruit of your life which show you standing in opposition to the most holy God and through your calling me, and, and it doesn't even matter if you call me this, but the fact that you stand against the Spirit of God, that's the big deal. That puts you in a position of being condemned. Our words become gauges of our hearts. Now I want to conclude and just share with you a few stories about how the words work when a heart is full of, of grace and how the words work when a heart is full of goodness and how the words work when a heart is full of gratefulness. Grace when the heart is full of love. When the heart is, is baptized by the love of God, so full of this love, something I'm praying more and more in my life. I'm saying, God, why is it that I hold back? Why is it that I resist? Would you just open my heart so that I would so deep in the depths of my being be controlled by your love? Because the heart that is full of fear, the heart that is full of fear seeks to control, seeks to manipulate, seeks to get outcomes for themselves because out of your dependence on yourself, you need to make life happen. And that's what these Pharisees were doing. Out of fear, they respond. And, and, and it's that whole idea that I said a few weeks back. It, what we love, we try to control when we're in fear. And that's not real love. 
So I, I had a, a, a lady sharing with me her story, and she tells me about her story, and she said that for, for she went through two marriages, and she came to know Christ at a certain point in the second marriage. That one failed, and then she got married, and she's been married for 20 years. She's been in this church down in the southern Minnesota area, and she, this is just the last week she's sharing this with me, and she said it was just a great marriage, and then about 20 years after things kept going on, our, our marriage kept heading south, but we were busy and active in the church. We were leading. We were doing all kinds of things. We were, we were looked upon by people as being kind of the ones who are the, the foundation. They'd done all kinds of works for, for God through their service. And their marriage was falling apart. And finally, after 20 years, they finally got real and they said, we just can't live together. They separated. The pastor found out about it. After they'd been separated for about four months and they shared with the pastor. And, and, and I love the pastor's response. It was out of a heart of love, which love transforms hearts instead of one of fear. Because usually what happens if a pastor finds out, goes, oh no, what am I going to do if the church finds out? These are, how do we get them back together? What do we do to fix them? It's not about them, it's about me and us. He doesn't respond out of fear. A heart full of love looks at him and goes, wow, this is really great. You are finally getting open about the fact that you have some things that have been covered up that you need to deal with. And guess what? In faith and love, this God is so good if you turn to him. He's in a place right now to upgrade your marriage to a place it's never been before. That is grace. Words that come from a heart that's full of love, that understands the power of God, has the power to transform hearts, not concerned about fear and trying to control. And you just apply that however you want to in families and every other place. But a heart that is touched by the love of God, transformed by the love of God, begins to speak words of grace that have the power to change lives because they're transforming hearts. And then there's another story. Um, Goodness. This whole idea of a heart that is... Full of love, and then a heart that is want, wants truth more than anything. Our goodness does not come from our trying really hard to be good. Our, our goodness comes from being just honest before God and saying, God, I need you. If, if I'm going to be the kind of person you want me to be, open my heart. Don't let me be defensive. Let me hear your truth. I um, got a, a, a couple emails this week. And one of the emails um, was sent to me from a person, and I just wrote him back and said, could I use this in the service? I'll keep it anonymous, but the email in the heading said, that's us from last week's message. And the person wrote me back, and I love it, said, yeah, for sure, go ahead and use it, because if it gives permission for more people to get real so they can see the goodness of God, great. Good morning, Pastor Kevin. Your sermon of last week, yesterday, was perfect for the state of our marriage. Unhealed wounds, unresolved conflicts, unmet needs. So where do we start to resolve all this? Isn't that great? That's, that's a heart that wants goodness. And it's so often in churches, what we do is we try and hide and cover it up, and, and we're doing all we can so the heart is not in a place where seeking and hungering for truth, but it's seeking to look and appear right and good. And the words that come from that are not words that give life, but they give death. These are words that give life. Because maybe some other people go, you know what, that's me. I, I, need, I need God too. How, do, how does God move in this? I got another one from another person this last week who uh, is, is getting real and searching in their own hearts to become more like Jesus. Hi, Kevin. I just wanted to share my thoughts about your message last Sunday. I read the verses you preached on the week before. I read those verses the week before, and then when I came to church that Sunday, they, 
when I read it, they really didn't sink in. They weren't that meaningful to me, like Beelzebub, demons, etc. What's that all about? Then on Sunday last week, when you started talking about how we can allow these openings for evil to come into our lives, I knew the Spirit was talking directly to me. Both of your examples you gave early on happened to me the week before. And you know, folks, those both examples, I didn't put in my message. They came to me when I was speaking. He writes, I was so stressed at work that I was having chest pains, and the way I was coping was with junk food, anybody relate? And happy hour after work. You had my attention. I was still struggling to understand what to do about it. I said to my wife on Sunday afternoon, you know, Jesus isn't going to come to work and do my job for me, so the stress is still here. So on Monday morning, as I was sitting on an airplane headed to my client's site where all the stress lives, I opened my Bible and looked into the back and realized it was November 1st and that if I started at John 1, the reading plan showed I could do the whole New Testament by December 31st. So I started with John 1 and I ended up reading about the teaching where Jesus is turning over tables at the temple and realized that Jesus can help me. With my work. This is the Holy Spirit working on Sunday, now working on Monday in his life, now giving him answers to what his heart longs for so that he can be the good person like Jesus wants him to be. So that Jesus can help me. It seemed pretty clear that he didn't hold things in that he needed to do or say, that Jesus left them out, even if it meant that he let it out with some anger. This may seem like an odd connection to your message of Matthew 12, but I know that by keeping things inside and taking on the worries of this world, I'm opening the door for Satan. So I didn't have anything less to do that was deemed less important by anyone this week. And I still worked a lot of hours, but the stress hasn't brought me down because I've been calling on the Spirit for protection. God's at work, folks. He's at work in the lives of people. He is at work in this body. And let me share one last thing. We'll close. Gratefulness. Rooted in God's love, not out of fear, we speak words of grace. With hearts that are hungry for the truth, God comes in with the truth and His Spirit begins to transform our hearts into those things we want, the goodness. And then there is this heart that is full of a confidence that we are secure in the hands of God, that no matter what is happening, from our our mouths actually speak words of gratefulness and thankfulness. So I get this email this past week about a mom with preschool kids and primary-age children who's been diagnosed with terminal, incredibly aggressive cancer. She writes, You ask if it's a big deal if you ask questions, then I fall apart in the midst of them. Grieving is a part of this process. It'll happen and it needs to happen. You ask some great questions. I'll answer this time through an email. How am I feeling? Today I had my third round of chemo. By 9.30 p.m. I began to feel achy all over and by 10.30 headed to bed to rest this tired body. What a fascinating journey this is proving to be. Certainly I never saw it coming. I am a girl who tends to cling to verses. Here are a couple I gathered this week. Psalm 98.11. Light shines on the godly and joy on those whose hearts are right. May all who godly rejoice in the Lord and praise His holy name. My thoughts, she writes, What a joy, capitalized, and privilege, capitalized, it is for me to serve our Lord from this place of weakness. 
I get to praise him amidst his trial. What could be more glorious to him and more defeating to the antagonist? Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God prepared this time for me. He has a plan and he'll see me through it. Proverbs 21.26, Some people are always greedy for more, but godly love gives. Praise the Lord, I can get to continue giving of my time to my children through this year. I get to continue building my relationship with them and don't have to focus all the hours of the day on my illness. I just tend um, to need to get some sleep from time to time. And then I get to come and serve in my home. This walk would be so depressing if it wasn't for my children and others who love and serve. And because of all these things, she has more to say. Psalm 92.4 has all the more meaning for me. You thrill, she capitalizes me, Lord, with all that you've done for me. And I could go on and on, but this should give you a flavor of how the Word is my strength and that I lean on Him who is my security when I pass through these valleys. And I look at that and I go, God, you have the power through your Holy Spirit to make us people who aren't concerned about appearances and doing the right things out here, but are concerned about our hearts and our thoughts that allow for our words to be transformed so that from our hearts and our thoughts and our words, they come out eventually with the power that is authored by the Spirit to do actions that transform the people we live with. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we take a moment to surrender ourselves in song, would you take our hearts, anybody here who is in a place where they've never asked you to give them a new heart, would you just say, Jesus, come into my life, forgive me of my sin, I open my heart to you, give me this heart transplant. And for any person here who sees their words and their thoughts continually, coming out in ways that they know are not right. Right now, today, repent, clean your heart, and begin to say, Spirit of God, fill me, fill me, change me, transform me. I surrender all.